Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Will Sipling, one of the hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Scott Hauer about his new book, God of All Comfort, a Trinitarian Response to the Horrors of This World. Scott is an Anglican minister and lecturer in Christian thought at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. Scott, thanks for coming on to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Now, there's a word in your title that I feel that we Americans can sometimes <laughs> have a problem with pronouncing, but I will do my best throughout the interview. And also your your name as well. I want to make sure I'm getting that right. It's Dr. Scott. Yes, it's Harrower. There's too many H's and R's in the word Harrower and in the word horrors. So I think uh, you guys are set up for a difficult time. I'm terribly sorry about that. But we'll do our best. We'll do our best. But Back to the book and back to, to you. I've given you a little bit of a brief introduction, but I'd like to hear a little bit about you first before we progress into talking more about the book. Sure, no worries. So um, I'm Australian born, uh, but when I was five years old, uh, my family together with uh, myself and my brother went to Argentina where my father worked in publishing and my mum was organising um, shoes and clothing relief. Uh, missions. Um, we were Anglicans with an Anglican missionary society. So I grew up in Argentina with my brother. We went there when um, there was a civil war and a military dictatorship. So we lived there uh, during a big time of transition for Argentina, including the Falklands War. I returned to Australia when I was 15, completed my education and got to know a wholly different culture. Finished my studies here, went to university and um, then over time, I've been involved in a mentoring group in Germany uh, through a really weird but wonderful series of uh, events. So I've sort of had a bit of a multicultural um, upbringing and formation as a person, and that certainly has informed the book. And I'm sure we'll talk about those experiences, just what you've mentioned so far, being in Argentina during a time in a place where there was just violence and trauma, these horrors going on. I'm sure that deeply affected the book that you've written, as well as the other experiences you've had. Yeah, sure. Mm, yeah, and I actually returned to Argentina as an adult and worked in the north uh, in the hospital system um, at the same time as I was uh, helping out in a German congregational church. So um, it was interesting to experience um, a difficult political and lived situation as an adult as well as a child and a teenager. So it's certainly been very formative, yes can only imagine. And I'm guessing, do both of those perspectives show up in the book, both the younger years and where you're at today as an adult? Yeah, they do show up in the book. I think um, as a child and a teenager, you know, there's a great sense of um, fear and uncertainty uh, growing up in a place such as Buenos Aires. But also as an adult, what you realize is that in response to the uh, fear in the air and the instability of life, that we set up um, structures to cope with horrors. And sometimes those structures themselves can be um, structures that produce horrors of their own. Um, so human coping 
if it's not done well, can be very abusive. And so the tension uh, for many people in Argentina is how to live well and live in ways that are coherent and generate social good at the same time as participating in structures that over time really do seem to compound the issues. So how do you, how do you break those cycles and pursue the good towards good outcomes, living in a virtuous way? It's um, very, very tricky. And I think as an adult, I was able to appreciate that dynamic too. Those sound like very interesting kinds of topics there, especially what you mentioned about sometimes the structures that can be used to overcome the trauma can be traumatic themselves. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes, yes. So an example of that is um, there's essentially a patronage system that is a very good way of helping people distribute um, wealth and honour that enables survival at, at one level. However, on the other hand, patronage sets up obligations, which means that people can really impose um, little dictatorships on others and keep others in their current social situation because it's convenient. Um, so that's, you know, on one hand, patronage can be good to survive, but on another hand, it can be very abusive and the people at the top of the pyramid want to stay on top. I'm also wondering if, I know coming at this from a religious perspective as an Anglican theologian and minister, I'm also wondering if perhaps religion can actually serve in this negative way as well, if those structures can contribute to that. Yeah, so um, South America, um, together with Australia, has a long history of what sociologists would call toxic uh, religion. Um, so the participation of the uh, church and collaboration with the military dictatorships is something that um, South Americans have not got over and the church's reputation has been tarnished um, because they would actively dob in people uh, to the military dictatorships. Um, in Australia, we've recently had a royal uh, inquiry, which is kind of the highest form of judicial inquiry possible into sexual abuse uh, in religious institutions, and the church, Catholic and Anglican, were the main churches being investigated. And uh, very sadly, um, we have a cardinal, Cardinal Pell, who's an Aussie, who I've met myself before, looked up to very much. He's now in jail for uh, raping two young men. Um, and that's just disastrous uh, for uh, the people involved in that situation. It's involved um, Christians doing appalling things of which they feel guilty and may never recover themselves. So religion in its toxic form does compound horrors, uh, both gross horrors experienced, so disasters, and also just the smaller horrors of human interaction uh, that are abusive. Um, so if religion is not handled well, it can be highly toxic. What I was aiming at in the book is um, to think about how God the Trinity may be with us and involved in our lives in such a way um, to generate what's called positive religious coping, that is human flourishing, uh, that is enabled, generated and given a direction by um, God himself. And I'm sure that that's a topic that you will delve deep into in the book, mainly because if, if there are people who have suffered greatly uh, through the traumas of wartime, 
and then have those traumas compounded compounded through these negative religious experiences, then it seems as though it's a big project to use a different kind of more compelling narrative, to be sure, um, but still using religion in the process of helping to have individuals overcome trauma from war and religion. Yeah, so I was very careful to make sure that I was using um, DSM-5 and psychological medical uh, work on what trauma is and what uh, recovery entails. That way I could add the theological piece to recovery from trauma, which essentially revolves around three things, um, recovering a sense of self, recovering a sense of safety and engagement with a new community. So what I was wanting to do was to think about, okay, how as realists, uh, metaphysical realists, can we think that God, the Trinity, actually enables the very things that medicine tells us we need uh, to recover from trauma? So I was very keen not to be working in the land of fairy tales, but to work um, with respect to what humans actually need in the everyday for recovery from trauma. And that draws on um, my, my first degree um, was uh, in health science and I worked in hospitals for a long time as a researcher. So I'm very keen to draw theology and medical science, psychology, sociology together for the good of people that have experienced horrors and um, are trauma survivors. And that comes across very clear, clearly in the book, even though your full-time job is is working as an Anglican theologian. This isn't a book that's just for pastors or priests or ministers. This is a book that could be used across the spectrum of those in the helping professions. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So the way I've structured the book is that um, it has three parts. The first part describes horrors and trauma and the difficulties it generates existentially um, in terms of hope and in terms of religious questions. Then I think about, well, how horrors and trauma play out as far as um, understanding reality and religious experience. And then the third part is the constructive pastoral part, um, which relates to, well, what does this mean in practice? So some people may choose to... Um, skip the definitions and the theoretical aspect and just go to part three. And some of my students do that. Um, and others actually like going to part three of the book because they actually find part one a little confronting because as part one works through a definition of what horrors are and what trauma entails, people recognise that in themselves or their family units or their churches. So it is difficult. Um, some people have said that this is a book that requires rumination. So you might read 10 pages, put it down, think about it for a couple of days and then come back to it. Um, so people, according to who they are, read the book in different ways. Um, of course, the majority of people just work from part one to part three, but I actually say at the introduction, you can read this in different ways. And if you'd like to think about what it means pastorally, and that's your main interest, you can move to part three and think about how recovery takes place and what that involves for trauma survivors and how they can actually become uh, instruments of God's movement in the lives of others, um, which helps them uh, see that they can grow in Christ-likeness and be um, the face of God's kind, gentle and patient uh, to other people around them, which is great. I'm looking forward to working through each of those three sections, but you mentioned the introduction and I'd like to just pull out one 
quote that I'm going to paraphrase from the great Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor when she says, when you have to assume that your audience does not hold the same Christian concerns as you do, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock to the hard of hearing you shout and to the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. Can you tell me a little bit more about what what you were thinking as as you were including this in your introduction to the book? Well, that um, I'm very influenced by uh, Flannery, and she's a real hero of mine. Um, she's behind uh, the fact that I don't use the word evil much. I actually use the word horror because horror um, is about the effect that it has on us as much as what the horrors are. So the whole horror genre is about generating certain senses in you, fear, instability, and so forth. And what I wanted to do is instead of discussing the problem of evil, the evidential problem of evil, which is what this book deals with, I want to use the language of horrors in order to get people to sit up and recognise that we have terrible problems and that they are deep problems and they're problems with which we need to reckon with urgency. Um, There is no meek and mild problem of evil. It's actually a problem of horrors. That's where I'm going. And it sounds like some of those definitions about which words you're using are sort of the structure of that first part where you go into the backstory, trauma, and those issues. So can you tell me a little bit more about those specific definitions and the very purposeful vocabulary you're using then to describe these different issues? Yeah, so I set up the discussion on horrors um, against a backstory of being a human being as an image of God, and that means that we have um, a relational aspect to who we are, a moral aspect and a creative aspect, and that we are made to flourish according to our kind. So we're supposed to flourish in morally good relationships with other people for the sake of creatively developing cultures uh, oriented towards the common good. So that's who we're meant to be, and that background then helps us understand how hideous it is when um, persons experience a movement where death invades life, and that's the first criteria of what a horror is, is that there's a degeneration of the fullness of flourishing and that results in human beings experiencing losses in the moral, relational, and creative aspects of who they are. So I'm very careful to say that that's a very important aspect of what a horror is, that there's always a replacement of good things with at least lesser goods or real evils. And then to that line, I add four other um, aspects which may or may not be present. Um, Often horrors, gross horrors, are sourced in um, objective, relationally immoral action. So we might think of someone who is raped or someone who's mutilated or someone who is um, hideously bashed, uh, that certainly is sourced in an objective and relationally moral action. In addition, um, what a horror does is that it prevents a person from being fully personal, as may have been possible, and equally as important, that person is not available to others to help others experience full human personhood. So it's not just something that has an impact on the one person. It has an impact on the community. Fourthly, a horror involves a trauma response. 
Um, and this response uh, is one that means that their uh, memory understanding uh, is fragmented. They can't integrate this experience with everything else that they had assumed about the regularity of the world. It's it's a terribly disruptive and breaking event. And what it does is that it diminishes the relational, moral and creative aspects of who a person is because that's what a trauma response involves. And um, finally, a horror is an event from which it's not possible to recover fully. So life will always be different after a horror, a gross horror. So I'm very careful with my definition of what a gross horror is. Um, I point out that some horrors are objective events um, in time and space. Other horrors, though, may be horrors um, of perception to do with fear and despair. So I do work pretty carefully um, trying to set up a number of ways of understanding different kinds of horrors. And then after describing gross um, objective and subjective ones, I end up by talking about what you and I may experience, which are commonplace horrors. And these are horrors that are are frequently experienced. And what makes them horrors is that they are um, inherently alien to human flourishing um, and wholeness and peace between persons. So these are a thicket of thorns. That's how I describe them. That as we walk through life, they just tear away at us. And these little horrors where we betray each other, we lie to one another, we let each other down, we deliberately trip each other up. Um, These are the horrors that wear at us and waste away at us. And it's the reason why most people, when they retire, they move away from other persons. I mean, it seems like everyone who lives in Melbourne, where I live, um, retires to the country and wants nothing to do with other persons because we experience commonplace horrors in relation to one another. So I do try to be pretty careful about the different kind of horrors we can experience, yes. So it sounds as as if you have these different categories, objective, subjective, gross, commonplace. But perhaps I should have asked you if you have your own sort of working definition of horror broadly. If you have, uh, uh, in that same section, you use a quotation from Amanda Wortham when she says it's something like senseless and a brutal onslaught of tragedy. But how would you define the word? Well, a horror for me is any event in which there is a deterioration of life towards death. It's any event in which death invades life. It's horrors are always damaging movements from life to death. Um, that, that's how I think of it very broadly. I realize it is such a complex term that that's probably a very difficult question. Um, but I, but I do know something else you've done in this same section is you've contrasted this with Shalom. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So that, that really is what provides me with a conceptual framework for thinking about, um, horrors. So Shalom has to do with what Genesis one and two describes, which is Um, a situation in which life is teeming, it's abundant, it's flourishing, and the fish uh, flourish according to their kind, humans according to their kind, animals according to their kind, and all this is good and very good in God's eyes. And so we all flourish together as an ecosystem, and that involves a relationship between a man and a woman and men and women um, to God uh, who walks uh, amongst them in the garden. So 
that's what flourishing is. It's it's together. And that conceptual background tells me that if there is an invasion of death, a damage to any aspect of us that would prevent us from flourishing together for the good, then that's actually a horror. It's it's inherently unnatural. It's a movement away from what should be. Um, there is damage there and it's a damage that needs to be repaired. So the reason I really want to unpack horrors and I take my time to do so is to point out, wow, given what's happened and how unnatural it is, there's so much work that needs to be done in recovery. I really, having worked in hospitals, I, I really do want to accent that uh, when great horrors are done to people, a, a great amount of work needs to be done. We can't just get up the next day and, and move on as if these things don't happen. Um, they introduce a fundamental warping into people's lives and that, that has profound effects because we're actually meant to live together um, towards flourishing and wholesomeness. Uh, my work's also very informed by my wife's work. She's a social worker who works in the area of domestic violence and um, uh, we talk about work, uh, both our work every day with each other and, you know, it's just a long road to recovery and some people um, look down on the long road to recovery and don't understand how life is inherently different after horrors. But I think that what I'm trying to do is go, look, there are really good reasons why horrors are absolute degradations of who we're meant to be and that's why recovery takes such a long time and requires a deep sense of safety, which has been broken. It requires integration into new communities, which is very difficult. And it also requires the long process of being able to integrate what's happened into a coherent narrative of the self. And that's very difficult to do. So I just take my time just to make sure that we don't skip over how bad things really are, because we, if we're going to look for real solutions, they have to comport with the profound diagnosis. It sounds that, that that examination that you're doing uh, in your own life and your experience in the hospitals and with with your wife's work, I'm guessing some of those um, stories and experiences, are these the kinds of things you're including in part two of the book when you address the things that happen in the, in the real world? Yeah, sure. So when I get into the issues um, that arise from horrors, one way to think about them and one way to think about um, a, a Christian response or a religious response to these is to think about if we're going to be realists and address these issues in real life, we need to think about phenomenology and real-life stories, um, which is the reason why I choose to address the issue of horrors through a story and not merely through concepts. And there's been a number of Authors who've said that, you know, theodicies need to be in the shape of stories and we need to be observant of the phenomena that take place um, in people's lives. Another important thing, I guess, is that this project, uh, this book, is related to a larger project of pointing out um, different ways and different arguments for responding to the evidential problem of evil. And what I'm wanting to say is that some people will say, because of the great volume and uh, extreme nature of evils in the world, it's very unlikely a God exists. And were that God to exist, that God would be immoral, so not good, uh, not very powerful and not knowledgeable. What this book does is it contributes to the aspect of the question, which is 
what kind of God is there and could it be that he's involved in recovery from evil and horror in a morally helpful, um, good, powerful and knowing manner? So I'm not dealing with whether or not God exists, I assume that, but what I'm trying to do here is to say it may be the case that God is actually involved in a morally good, uh, uh, knowing way that is also powerful. Um, So that means we have at least two lines of evidence when we deal with the problem of horrors. Yes, there are great horrors, but on the other hand, it may be the case that God actually is involved in a good way. And because God's involved um, in a good way, I believe that is kind of uh, related to the fragmentation and brokenness of the everyday, we can actually look for uh, phenomena in the real world that may be evidence for God's involvement. So again, I'm trying to work as someone with a first degree in science who's also a theologian, married to a social worker and who worked in hospitals for a long time. I'm really looking at, at the real world as it is and to see if perhaps we can open ourselves to see a little bit deeper into reality. Maybe we could see more that would be helpful for us for recovering from horrors and trauma. Could you share maybe just one of, of the most striking of these stories from the book, just so the listeners can get an idea of what it is that you're covering in this section? Well, when I'm um, talking about um, being attuned to the readers and uh, reading the Bible together understanding that people have a a horror-sensitised reading of the texts. I guess I like to tell the story of um, having uh, mentored um, lots of people, um, and part of that has involved reading the Bible at times, is that I've become aware of the fact that um, when people read the Bible, they do so from their own cultural background and personal experience. And often, sadly, personal experience involves growing up in families whether parents or siblings have suffered horrors and are traumatised or they themselves have been uh, traumatised. So what that means is that when they read biblical texts or experience Christian liturgy, um, participate in Christian communities, they always do so with an eye that perceives perhaps more quickly than others um, the horrors involved in the text. Um, So reading through Matthew, for example, Um, they will see that the massacre of the innocents of the little boys under two is related to Jesus um, being born. So for them, the immediate question is, okay, fine, you might say that God is doing something in the good, for the good in the world by bringing about Jesus, but look what it does. It has a terrible impact on others. How come your God doesn't value the lives of these babies? Like, the Christian God is a, is a sick, abusive God um, who doesn't care about these babies if necessarily when Jesus is born, these babies die. I mean, wouldn't a good God act differently? Um, poor Mary and Joseph have to go on the run and they're hunted down and, you know, being hunted down um, meets the criteria for a traumatic um, ex- response in a person. Um, DSM-5 tells us that if you think your life is under threat, you are going to experience all the symptoms associated with trauma. So poor Mary and Joseph, they have this child that they weren't even looking to have at that time, and then they've got to go on the run because they're being hunted down. They lose um, their family. They lose the safety of their own culture, and they certainly would not be able to flourish as they would have done otherwise. 
So a horror-attuned reading says, wait a minute, mate, I'm just not going to read through Matthew's gospel only looking at the nice bits. I'm going to recognise that there are all these horrors in here and you need to tell me, Mr Christian, how this works because I don't get your God. And that's why you have this blessed reading of Matthew, correct? Yeah, sure. So um, acknowledging the reality of um, the the horrors um, as we read the text I also point out that in uh, Matthew 16, there's a story where Jesus contrasts a reading, uh, a perception, an understanding of flesh and blood with a perspective that's given from the Father in heaven, which is a perspective to do with the living God and life. And um, this is all around a moment of recognition by Peter. And what I try to say is that given that God is God the Trinity, he can enable us through the Holy Spirit to see things not merely according to a perspective of flesh and blood, but also to see that the living God is at the same time giving us a perspective to see that he is bringing about good despite the fact that at the very same time there are hideous horrors taking place Uh, in the world of humanity, which is always competing with one another and trying to take advantage of one another. So essentially what we need to recognise is that there were two parallel movements always going on. There's the world of horrors operating at the same time as God and his movement towards life and flourishing and the restoration of shalom again. And we need to recognise both in Christian texts, in Christian liturgy, in Christian communities as we pursue the common good in society. And I guess the Christian hope is that one day we will see God face to face in Jesus Christ and be fully restored and enter into the fullness of life together. And that is the great hope that awaits us, a time when we will be restored um, to our dignity, our relationships, our morality, and the wonderful creativity that I think is going to be part of um, heaven. I'd love to hear some of the reactions maybe your students have had towards this particular review you have towards the text and towards even, say, current dramatic events. Yeah, look, um, I'll tell you something that happened yesterday. Um, There was a very sad story of um, a mother who uh, drove um, a car full of children um, into death and said, um, you know, we have tried to seek God. Um, No one in our church reached out to us. And um, she just killed herself and the kids. And so we were discussing this yesterday, last night in my ethics class. And uh, one of the things I do in the book is I say, look, if we are not available as God's images to reflect God's love, care, kindness, justice to each other, including those who are suffering, have been traumatised, we've lost the plot. Because the big idea is that God works directly in people's lives, but most of the time he works indirectly through people because people have the capacity to image him, to reflect him to one another. So what's happened in that tragic situation with the mother and the kids is that because of the inaction of the church, um, they have not perceived God's kindness and hope for them. The church could have flipped and turned around a situation that felt like meaninglessness, hopelessness, ongoing despair and pure um, uh, loss of agency and a way forward. The church could have done that, 
by imaging God's kindness because God's spirit is within them and they're supposed to be growing in Christ-likeness. The church failed and there's terrible results. So what I'm talking about in this book is not theoretical. Uh, It has real-world impacts and can make a tremendous difference in people's lives. I guess that's why there's sort of a sense of urgency in the way that the book is written. Do you think that maybe in our current time with mass media and always on news that it's even more important? You've mentioned this is, I mean, goodness, there's there's always something going on in the news that can bring this sort of traumatic, horrific reading to the front of our minds. H- how would you see this as being able to make a positive impact on today's um, very media-driven world, which is often just filled with terrible things? I think one of the most important things that Matthew reminds us and the Christian tradition points out is that God, the second person of the Trinity, took on a human nature and has bound us uh, to himself uh, by the Spirit. So in the Son and the Spirit, God has united us to himself, which means that we have at least one safe human being Jesus Christ, to whom we can relate at all times, um, despite the fact that we're buffeted, pushed around, bullied, lied to by the media and social structures. I I come back to that again and again, and we see this in the life of St. Augustine um, where he uh, was living in a time of crisis where the empire was collapsing and when you read his works on nature and grace, what he does again and again is he falls back on the Lord's Prayer. And he is someone who is always praying that God's will will be done. He always prays to God as his father. He knows that God is the physician. And what's happening for Augustine is that there's this great safety in this one relationship that is permanent in a changing world. And that's been very important uh, for me. I, um, in our garage, at home, I've built a, a little makeshift, um, I wouldn't call it a chapel, but it's something, a proto-chapel, something approaching a chapel, where I um, I often uh, go to pray to remind me of the safety that the reality of the incarnation and union uh, with God by the Spirit uh, provides me, and it's from that basis that I can move forward constructively with a sense of agency and a call to help others in a in a chaotic world. I think it's it's the one stable point. I am not surprised that the image of the anchor is used in the Bible, um, because we are we are secured with God. But it's not just something that lies in our minds. It's actually a metaphysical reality. Um, so we have a grounding, a safe person with whom we can always be. I'm just thinking too. You're saying you've built this this chapel. Um, in your own garage, which is, I'm sure, a wonderful um, thing to have with you. Um, what about those for whom maybe they, they haven't had the same experiences of actually seeing the comfort that comes through prayer or that comes through this regular um, ability to worship, such as this this woman who uh, drove her van and, and her children uh, into destruction? Um, how How do we get the message of your book and just the message of this Trinitarian ideal into the wider world around us to prevent these kinds of horrible things from happening. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm over 40 now and I, um, I guess I have grown into, uh, this relationship. 
um, that I believe to be real. Um, look, for a long time uh, I struggled and I used to carry a cross, um, a silver cross that uh, Roland Werner, my uh, German mentor, um, gave me. And I used to carry that cross uh, in my pocket at all times merely as a reminder because that's all I could handle at the time, merely as a reminder that there is a God, a God who uh, has empathy and sympathy with us because he was incarnate and suffered, a God who um, also has united us to himself. And that's that's all I could handle at the time. And I knew that um, the reality of the crucifixion meant a call to serve others. And that that's basically as far as, as I could go. And um, I knew that I was called to a life of virtue where I could with what I had. Um, you know, it was it was a very difficult time uh, for many years, um, but that, that's all I could handle. You know, I wasn't at the point of, yeah, building. And believe me, it really is a makeshift space. It's not anything wonderful. It wasn't. So what I'm saying is um, I had a different um, uh, aesthetic instrument, which is a cross in my pocket together with um, – another cross in my car that just reminded me that there, there is a God who's been crucified in, in Christ and that that makes a difference to the kind of kindness that we need to show towards others. And that's as far as it went. I, I really think it's steps at a time. Um, one of the interesting things about the cross that I had hanging in my car for many, many years is that it's something called a holding cross. So it's a normal cross made out of wood, but it has a curve in it so that it can fit in the palm of your hand as you're dying. So it's it's a cross that's given for the dying to hold. And um, that was very significant for me because I knew a lot of people um, who were friends and um, also um, students who lived after horrors um, as as if they as if death was as much a reality as what was left of their lives. And the holding cross gave me the image of just just keep on holding on, even as you're dying and, and dying away. So what I'm saying is that the Christian tradition has a lot of symbols that are available for Christians to give to one another. And both the silver cross I had in my pocket and the holding cross were gifts that friends had given to me. Um, perhaps they didn't know what was really going on, but um, they are these aesthetic symbols. And I think that the way that we're present to one another can involve a meal, it can involve a cross, it can involve a phone call, it can involve coaching um, the children of a very difficult backgrounds. So there are so many ways that we can uh, practically live to show that God cares. And look, I tell you, it, uh, sometimes all, that's all that people need is to see that that there is care for them in the world from God and that that care suggests that there's more going on and that what's going on now is not the end. Things uh, may be very difficult for the remainder of this life, but actually after death there is a turnaround. And all we need are small symbols. So whatever you have, you know, you, you don't have to build the chapel. That's what I'm saying. It sounds as though some of those topics are probably uh, the main focus of part three of your book. The the main uh, chapter headlines there or titles there are recovering safety 
recovering story, and recovering community. It sounds as though these aesthetic signs, such as this, this very special cross given to you, probably summarizes a good deal of what's in there. But is there anything else you'd like to add about those particular sections? I think that uh, recovering safety, story, and community are possible uh, with the help of uh, God the Trinity. Um, and I also think that they're uh, possible with the help of uh, people who have experienced that themselves. And um, that's where I would suggest that uh, those who read the book think about how they could be involved in the lives of other persons, to think about, well, where can I come in uh, at this moment? How can I help others uh, flourish as human beings? Um, This final section, Recovering Safety, Story and Community, is very much oriented toward the common good. So um, it has that direction of how can we move forward together. It's not an individualistic section. Um, One little uh, visual for it is another cross uh, that I picked up in San Antonio a couple of years ago, which it's a silver cross, but it has flowers um, stuck onto it and encased in glass. And this was very important for me because um, it has the idea of there being a livingness and a beauty that can come out of the background of uh, death and suffering, which is what a cross symbolises. And that's a cross I, I had uh, in my pocket and my gym bag for many years, so much so that I, sadly I lost it. But the big idea there is that that flowers and growth and beauty and loveliness can actually come out of profound suffering and darkness. And um, that symbol of the cross with beautiful flowers, in a sense, captures the flourishing that I'm hoping is possible for people as they recover safety, story, and community with the aid of God, the Trinity, and the church. That sounds like an excellent summary of the thesis of the book then as well, using understanding the the Trinity to be um, the purpose and the focus of all those things. I am wondering, though, since this has become sort of your topic, if you are also um, considered the ac- expert on questions such as um, horror films and, and, and those kinds of images, you know, anything from the scenes from the Lord of the Rings films where you first meet the orcs and they're coming out of this sludge and this mire and it's symbolizing sin, of course, to, to, the, to the various kinds of uh, popular zombie TV shows as well. Um, how do those kinds of images integrate with what you're speaking to in the book? I do speak about the horror genre um, in the book Um, and I point out that what the horror genre does and horror images do is that they help us to digest the horrors that we have experienced from a safe distance. Um, I've just watched um, Black Summer, the new zombie series, which um, I thought was very good. Um, It's sort of a prequel to Z Nation and um, I can sit there comfortably at home watching what it looks like when people become less than human um, and noting the parallels between that and what goes on in our real lives. And it helps me to digest my own lives and uh, hideous experiences. So um, I think that there are great continuities between how we think theologically and the images that culture gives us. I refer to my model of um, horrors as a zombie theory of evil because it's all about beginning with something good that is then degraded um, and 
about what is wasted away in human beings. So what what remains is not what we were supposed to be. Um, so I find it generative uh, theologically in terms of imagery and so forth. Um, I think it's very interesting that our culture right now is majoring on series that aren't about success but are often about death. Um, and so we had uh, Game of Thrones has just finished, you know, and everybody's freaked out because it's not the ending they wanted, which I think is very ironic in a series about the imperfect nature of human relations and power. So I think that um, it's very helpful if you're attuned to what's going on culturally in terms of horror. But I must say I'm, I don't uh, enjoy watching many other kinds of horror other than zombies and tale, like weird tales like Lovecraft. I think that they're very influential, but I actually find um, like The Exorcist and that kind of horror movie terrifying. I don't watch them at all, just a bit too close to reality. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, that it's helpful for us to use some of the imagery from horror and to be aware that others are um, consuming these cultural products because it's a real problem. So, so you're saying that there is sort of this, maybe not repressed is the word, but because there are these traumatic things that haven't been dealt with that are much more apparent and much more obvious in today's world, that this could be why there's a rise in these kinds of series and, and movies? That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, it's our society's way of trying to cope with the fact that we experience overwhelming horrors and overwhelming experiences of distorted humans that's what a zombie horde is it's what should be kind helpful loving humans walking towards you just wanting to get a piece of you i mean isn't that the corporate experience isn't that what advertisers are trying to do isn't that what politicians are trying to do when they, they just use you and don't care they just want to rip your brain out for their vote that that's a zombie-like experience and so as we watch those zombies maybe we can start to process why I find it so disgusting when I'm treated in certain ways by people when they're not really acting as images of God. That's incredibly helpful, just as an image, um, which also means that there is much more where that came from, from reading the book. And I'm sure it was just a joy to finish. But I, I'd be interested to know if there are other projects that you have working on or, or, or any books that are in the pipeline as well. Yeah, I'm pretty keen to... Um, keep on uh, trying to be helpful in this space uh, for people that either have a Christian religious belief or are flirting with it um, to think about how we can respond um, to the evidential and experiential problem of evil. So I'm very keen to keep on working on that and I'd like, and I am starting to work on a follow-up project to this. Um, in addition, I've just signed um, a contract with De Groetje on trauma and recovery in early North African Christianity. And the idea there is I'm going to work through martyrdom accounts um, between 180 um, to about 240 around Carthage and note how in those documents the producers of the hagiographies have spoken about different kinds of traumas, but they've also included in the hagiographies different Christian behaviours and beliefs like visions, participating in the Eucharist, spending time together and so forth that line up well with important aspects of recovery from trauma as we understand it today. 
So, for example, how they use their bodies, their imagination, how they pursue a sense of safety and so forth. Um, how they might have done it in early Christianity is very interesting to me um, because it helps us to think about how early Christians received texts, such as Matthew that I'm dealing with here, and then applied them in situ, in context, um, in the earliest centuries of Christianity. So this book, God of All Comfort, thinks about how we might apply these texts in today's context of horror and trauma, but I'm interested in how the early Christians applied these texts in their own situation um, as uh, ways to survive disasters, which is, was what persecution was. So I am pursuing entailments of this book. Yeah. Uh, Scott, well, that sounds like a great project along with this new book of yours, God of All Comfort, A Trinitarian Response to the Horrors of This World. And I'd like to thank you for coming on to the show today and thanks for your time. Look, it's been lovely to speak with you. Um, a great conversation amongst people interested in these very deep themes. So thank you very much for having me on, mate.